I love it when a picture tells a thousand words. Like, I really don't need to explain what we're looking at here. This is a regime shift, if I ever saw one, after literally almost 15 years of lower for longer, now we're in a completely different interest rate regime. We're also in a completely different inflation regime. So anyone that's still thinking old school, lower for longer, start forgetting that. Take it out of your vocabulary. It doesn't apply any longer. Um, the other thing that doesn't apply any longer is the Fed put. Th things have gone. These things are history. They're ancient history. While we have inflation above target, don't expect rate cuts anytime soon. So start to think about this new regime. The really good news, though, for bond investors is we think this move in rates has already taken us into restrictive territory. It's been very, very rapid, as you'll see. This is the fastest rate hike cycle we've seen in recent history. Um, you can see that the, the, the lines on the left are the, the current phase. Every other one is the more, more recent, um, really going back 20 to 30 years in terms of rate hike cycles. So not only have we moved rates a long way, we've done it incredibly quickly. So when we look forward, we see with that incredibly fast rate hike cycle all the way into restrictive territory, means that when we look forward, we'll be talking about sort of a fine tuning of policy. We're not talking about this, this quantum leap where we go from very, very easy policy, the easiest policy we've ever seen, um, all the way into restrictive zone, and now we'll see some fine tuning. Fine tuning may mean a small cut or a small hike from different central banks, depending upon their own circumstances, but very much so um, into restrictive territory already. So what we what we do now as as investors is think about what sort of fine tuning may be required and why. And part of that is, as we all know, monetary policy works with a lag. And so some of the lags that we're seeing this particular cycle are quite extreme. So the first one is as a result of the incredible fiscal spending and the excess savings that households were able to accumulate post the pandemic. And so that's still being eroded, but being eroded very slowly. Second thing, as we know, is corporations are hoarding labour. They weren't sure about what was going to happen. They weren't sure about labour supply in different parts of the world. We had the great resignation, these other things. Um, we've heard about work-life balance and what that means. Maybe there's, there's less hours being worked by different individuals. So labour hoarding is still an important element and it will impact the trajectory of, trajectory of policy and the, impl the uh, implications in terms of the real economy. The final thing we'll talk about in a little bit of detail is that the Australian household was able to lock in fixed rate mortgages really for the first time in a significant way that had a, a sort of big differential between um, the floating rate and the fixed rate, especially when you get a rate hike cycle like this one. So let's talk a little bit more about that and why we think that we are firmly in restrictive territory. So, so as I mentioned, when you, when you go through this regime shift, and I'll keep using that word to, so it hopefully sinks in by the end of my 15 minutes, is there are some winners and there are some losers. And when rates move so quickly, any floating rate borrower 
is vulnerable. And so when I think about floating rate borrowers, there's a few that jump out. So the first one is the bank loan sector. So remember bank loan managers always used to pound the table saying their asset class was fantastic because there's no duration. I'll give them that. They, they were beneficiaries in terms of the, the, the way that rates moved and the way that their asset class, the underlying securities didn't need to necessarily reprice. But the most important takeaway is that the borrowing rates of their end companies have gone up by 500 basis points. They used to borrow at 5%, now they borrow at low double digits. Those are the assets that are still in the portfolio. Those companies have to pay much higher debt. And I think, to sort of alluded to it at the start, but we don't think that um, fine-tuning of policy will result in a full easing cycle unless we get into recession. Okay, so unless we go into recession, don't expect interest rates to come back down anytime soon. They're going to be hovering around these sorts of levels. So when you're assessing any business model, any household balance sheet, don't assume, and this is for your personal perspective as well and for your families and your children, etc. is don't assume that somehow we just have to ride out a short-term interest rate storm and then we'll be okay. That's, not a, that's, not, that's, that's investing based on hope, not based on reality. So don't think about these rates all of a sudden coming down. So when we think about the Aussie household, the other, the other most vulnerable sector, you can see on the, on the left chart that at, in the middle of 2020, uh, sorry, 21, Almost 50% of new mortgages were fixed rate. As we all know, the banks had the availability of exceptionally cheap funding from the term funding facility. The RBA, through the, the Treasury, basically gave them um, funding at 10 basis points for three years. Not surprisingly, we end up with this big, um, this overwhelming amount of fixed rate mortgages and the two to three year periods now coming to an end. So you keep hearing about this mortgage cliff, but it's, it's legitimate. So you can see here, fixed rate mortgages almost got to 50% of new, um, new mortgages being written. They're all two to three years. And in the, in the right-hand chart, you can see they're all coming to maturity. So at the moment, about 5%, it's, at, it's peaking right now, about 5% of fixed rate mortgages of that blue line there, 5% of them every month switch to floating. So the borrower is going from a 2% rate to a 6% rate from one month to the next. 5% of the fixed rate mortgages. By the time we get to this time next year, there's no fixed rate mortgages left at the very low rates. Everyone's floating. So when you do have that sort of vulnerability, you need to be cautious and aware that that's, that's one sector of the economy where this lag of monetary policy will be extremely powerful because of a very different backdrop than we've, than we've been used to. And then you say, well, okay, well, rates are only 4%. We can all remember rates used to, used to go up to like the high teens. So why are we so worried at a 4% mortgage rate, 4% policy rate, and what that applies, or implies, I should say, for the mortgage market? Well, I think the, the really important thing to, to bear in mind here is that you see on the top left chart, the last time um, the policy rate was at 4% was back in 2012. 
on the top right chart, you can see between 2012 and now, the banks have basically kept about 1% of that margin in terms of their net interest margin. They've held on to those rate cuts and hikes, and if you add them all up by not passing it all on, it's about a one percentage point difference. So we take the 4% back in 2012, we add at least one, so the effective rate would be five. Then you say, well, how much, leverage, how much has leverage gone up since 2012 to today? It's gone up by about 26 percentage points. So then when we factor in the four plus an extra one margin plus the increase in leverage, when we do the numbers, there's more, um, and as, as people move on to these floating rates, there's more disposable income being used to pay for interest than ever before in Australian history, including when mortgage rates were 18%. So whoever tells you rates aren't restrictive, just make them, make them go through this logic to work out whether or not that's true. Because we think it's true, the, uh, the Australian household is extremely vulnerable. So something to be, be very wary of. On the flip side, Borrowers that were long-term fixed-rate borrowers have been incredibly well protected. So, as we know through the, through the pandemic, Federal Reserve and other central banks made funding very cheap for investment-grade corporations, especially in the US. So, what we found was, because remember, the, the early part of the pandemic, nobody really knew what was going to happen. The Fed said, if you're an investment-grade company, we'll back you, we'll allow you to... Um, issue bonds, and if there's no buyers, we'll buy them ourselves. And they ended up buying nothing. But the markets, as you see on the, on the blue bars here, we had record amounts of issuance from the investment-grade corporate sector at record low interest rates. So right now, about 40% of investment-grade debt that's still outstanding was issued in that little window. So while the Aussie household and bank loan borrowers very vulnerable, investment-grade corporations very well protected. The other sector that's been very well protected is the US household. They were able to borrow 30 years at 2%, not two to three years at 2%. So thinking about who wins and who loses out of this incredibly rapid change in interest rates. The takeaway of all of this, though, is that the entire bond asset class, as we all know, is repriced. This is the first time I've been able to say that the bond asset class is now in this new regime. We've adjusted very quickly to a different inflationary backdrop. Uh, and building off some of the earlier presentations, I wanted to provide some, not just a subjective PIMCO view, but some quantitative analysis looking at the hard data to say, is this, is this relevant? Is this justified? Um, so first thing to do is, just do some very straightforward mean variance, variance analysis um, that we would all have learnt in, in textbooks and look at efficient frontiers and how they've moved in the bond asset class versus the equity asset class. And not surprisingly, there's been a shift in both because the expected returns under, under both from, uh, from 18 months ago have improved. So this is looking at the change from end of December 2021 to today. So this is coming out of a pandemic, no one really knew. We had low, lower expectations for equity returns and we had bond yields close to record lows. So when you look at the change in those efficient frontiers, um, the, the quantum leap has been in the bond asset class. So we've gone from 
expecting sort of, again, low levels of volatility, but also relatively low levels of, of return in this blue line here, moving, shifting all the way up, almost, almost directly north. So we're getting more return for taking no more risk. And that's reflecting that huge change in interest rates. Equities has improved a slight amount, but it's only very marginal. Again, not surprising given that equities are, are also uh, susceptible to, to higher levels of interest rates. But the key takeaway here is that the most important driver of this change in efficient frontier and the value of, it, of the bond asset class is the starting yield. So because the yield has moved so far, the, uh, the attractiveness of the asset class becomes compelling. It's about 90% correlated with starting yield. The next thing to think about is sort of if you're doing one of these 60-40 bond allocation, equity allocation, um, 60 equities, 40 bond, again, a, sort of a global benchmark, and you say, let's optimise my portfolio tactically around that 60-40. And here the, here the, uh, the data is even more stark. And this is where I'd say the behavioural elements um, that's already been discussed becomes so, so important. Because if you fall into the trap of recency bias, which is one of the classic behavioural um, failures in terms of in investing, it's really essentially saying that it's a, a cognitive bias that favours recent events over older, uh, more historical events. And you think about 2021 as your anchor, you're going to make the wrong investment decision for the next cycle. You need to adjust very quickly. So why I say this is so stark in terms of this regime shift is what these two bars are showing you is that in December 2021, if you were tactically allocating around your 60-40, you would have had 86% in equities instead of 60 and just 14% in bonds. I think a lot of people in the room probably had that portfolio. Today, the numbers are in incredible. Out of a 60-40, instead of having 40 in bonds, the model says you should have 70. A 30% overweight to the bond asset class using exactly the same data and taking into account those two shifts in efficient frontiers. And I would argue that no one has that. I'm not even saying you should have that. But Think about that and think about if you're still wedded and anchored to 2021 and not taking, a, taking note of what's changed, you're falling into this behavioural trap. You need to really recalibrate to understand what an expected return of 5% versus for bonds versus an expected return of 6% for equities the 2021 allocation doesn't make sense. Okay, so that's a really, really important chart. This is looking at quantitative data. This is not some sort of subjective opinion. So just wrapping up, so if you are going to be overweight bonds or at least back to structural um, targets, where, where, where in the core, in the bond universe should be, you be investing? And it comes back to those same discussions we had earlier. You want to be investing in the areas of the market that are not vulnerable to the shift in interest rates. You want to be investing in very high quality borrowers, things like the US household or, or debt related to the US household, 
investment-grade corporates or other sort of very high-quality um, issuers, you want to be a little wary of um, going too far down the credit curve that could be susceptible to much higher interest rates. You'll hear a lot more about private credit markets. Um, again, we think there's plenty of value there, but make sure they've been marked to market because there's a lot of anomalies out there, but I think that asset class is going to stack up very effectively. And also what you see on this chart, not surprisingly, given all the data I just showed you, equities look expensive. So let me wrap this up by saying all I've done today, and, and, and Graham and I have worked closely on this, is just to prov provide a small sample of behavioural and quantitative data to whet your appetite to go and do a lot more research into the space, because I'm probably challenging a lot of your views. But when we go through such an incredibly powerful regime shift, doing nothing is not sufficient. You have to do something. With this sort of information, unless you do your own research and you dispute it and you think that I'm completely wrong, that's, that's fine. You've got to do something. You've either got to embrace it or come up with, a, with some additional information that suggests it's not valid. So all I'll say is that the, the optimal portfolio allocation, as I showed, has shifted dramatically over that 18-month period. It's been very, very rapid. Um, and we do think that something, there, is, there is definitely something to do. Um, but again, I would just implore you to, uh, to do a bit more digging. Um, I love challenges so, uh, and, and look forward to, uh, to hearing what they are.